Amen. Well, Hebrews chapter 1, we've come to the end of it. And you remember how the book of Hebrews began? Hebrews begins with no introduction. There is no segue into the book of Hebrews. There's no opening introduction or greeting or salutation. It just begins with a rather unapologetic burst of energy, if you would. God, at, as he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. I mean, just out of the gate, Christology, super exalted, super high Christology. It's a, just a beautiful thing. And, if you would, we come to the end of the chapter, and it sort of returns us to that place of highest exaltation, where Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God until all of his enemies are a footstool for his feet. And um, I want to connect the thought of the book, of, of this chapter for us. If you remember going back to verse 7, Hebrews stressed the fact that the angels are transient, they're transitory, they're, they're, they change depending on what ministry God has appointed to them and what shape or form and what their orders are. They are like the wind, they are like fire. And here, the author of Hebrews is going to bring in another final comparison between the angels and the sun, showing the sun to be better. And here it is the enduring supremacy of the Son that is pointed out to us. The enduring supremacy of Jesus Christ. You know, the question of the origin of the universe is still a really hot topic in American culture, is it not? Uh, many of you remember the recent debate between Ken Ham and Bill Nye that took place. The debate was over creation, evolution, it's just amazing to me that so many people watch that televised debate, that online, rather, debate. And um, statistics show that more people tuned in to YouTube and to watch the debate between Ken Ham and Bill Nye than people tuned in to watch the presidential inauguration of President Obama. Some figures had it as high as 10 million people tuned in to watch Bill Nye and Ken Ham debate the question of the origin of the universe. That is because people still don't know how, some people anyway, still don't know how the universe began. But Scripture, quite unapologetically, gives all credit to the Son of God for creating, for bringing the universe into existence and more than that, however, than sustaining the universe, controlling the universe, bearing up the universe, sustaining the universe by the word of his power. And what Hebrews chapter 1 verses 10 to 14 show us is that not only is Jesus creating the universe, sustaining the universe, but he's going to bring the whole universe to its end. He will roll it up like a garment. He will bring the consummation of all things. Just remarkable. So what we're looking at here is the, 
the rule and the reign of Christ and the eschatological triumph of Christ. Now, the author pulls from two passages of Scripture in order to show us this, one in particular, and that is Psalm 102. He also uses Psalm 110 to show the total majesty, supremacy, authority of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Psalm 110 is the most often quoted psalm in the New Testament. That is to say, the early church fed on Psalm 110 to prove above everything that Jesus is Lord of all. They comforted themselves under the tyranny of Rome, under the, the oppression of imperial worship, with the fact that Jesus Christ is sitting and ruling and reigning, and everything is in subjection to his feet. Everything has been brought under subjection to Jesus Christ. And what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us is that we don't see it now. We don't see that subjection now. Right now we see what appears to be a world in disorder and chaos, out of control, an antichrist system that is, that is prevailing. But such is not the case. This antichrist system in which we live in called the world, the Bible calls the world or the present evil age, is in fact under Christ's authority. It's remarkable. But Psalm 102 is where the author begins in verse 10. And it's also significant because it's a messianic psalm and it shows us the supremacy of Christ over creation. And so the context of the psalm I think is important as well. So we should develop the context of Psalm 102. So turn with me to Psalm 102. As I just kind of walk through this psalm with you, you will notice that Psalm 102 is about an individual who is afflicted. It is a psalm of affliction. There is someone here who's being described like a Job figure who is cast off and cast away from God by his indignation. He feels, that's in verse 10, but he feels so depressed, this psalmist, he feels so downcast that he compares himself to an unclean bird or to unclean birds which are actually mentioned in the Levitical Code, Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, reference to birds like an owl, birds like a pelican, birds that were not clean to eat. He says that's what he feels like. He feels like an unclean thing, like an unclean creature. His only hope, therefore, is to look forward, to look to the future of the redemption of God's people. In fact, the shift in the psalm causes total exaltation as he focuses in verse 13 and in verse 21 and praying for Zion's victory, praying for deliverance for God's people. And it seems like the context, therefore, these references to Zion, then later in verse 16 and verse 17, seemingly this is spoken at a time of the exile when Jerusalem laid in ruins. And the psalmist 
switches, therefore, from sorrow, the sorrow of the state of his soul, the sorrow of the state of the nation, to a place of singing, a place of exaltation. So he goes from lamentation to exaltation. Lamentation, verses 1 through 11, exaltation, verses 23 to 24 especially. But uh, the psalmist chooses, rather, to focus on Zion's happy future, the blessings of all the nations that will come in when the Lord is glorified, verses 15 and 16. The psalmist, in other words, sees a day that is coming when a future generation will sing the Lord's praises, verse 18 where Hebrews sort of picks up the thought of the psalm is where the psalmist begins to reflect on his own transience. Look at verse 23. He has weakened my strength in the way. He has shortened my days. This is where he turns to reflect on the eternality of God. He begins to reflect on the infinity of God, the creation of God, the fact that God is unchanging and the fact that God is the creator of all things. If you're there in Psalm 102, let's read from Psalm 102, verse 24 and following. He says, Oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old you have founded the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. All of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same. Your years will, come, will not come to an end. The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. Now, you're going to notice as we go back to Hebrews some differences between the psalm, reading it in the book of Psalms, and the quote that you find in Hebrews, and that is simply because of the influence of the Septuagint. What is the Septuagint? The Septuagint is the Greek translation from the Hebrew Bible. So scholars got together, they took the Hebrew Bible, uh, this is a couple hundred years before Christ, and they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek for the Greek-speaking world, and the New Testament authors are quite comfortable quoting from that translation. So, so much for, you know, people who think that, oh, the Bible's been translated thousands of times. How many times have you heard that argument? Well, the authors of Scripture themselves were comfortable using a good, reliable translation like the Septuagint. But Psalm 10 and also in Psalm 102 here, I want to point out three things about the Son. Three things, the outlining of creation, the outlasting of creation, and the outshining of creation. So for number one, the sun outlines the created order. Remember verse 10 is connected to the direct address in verse 8. So if you go back to verse 8, what does it say? But of the sun he says, and then follow the thought all the way to verse 10, you Lord. Amazing, because there the Father is speaking to the Son as Lord. You, Lord, in the beginning lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Does that change the way that we look at the Psalms? I think it does. 
I think that you pick up a book, uh, excuse me, you pick up a psalm like Psalm 96 or Psalm 69 or Psalm 89. Anywhere where you find a reference to creation, Psalm 139 or wherever it is found, Psalm 27, Psalm 29, anywhere where creation is being referred to and what you get is Jesus Christ, the creator of all things so that Christ can be appropriately preached as the creator of which the Psalms refer. It is appropriate, in other words, to refer to Christ in these Psalms. Jesus is credited with having designed and created everything. It's also, I guess, Important to point out that many of the times where in the Old Testament the word Yahweh is used, the translators of the Septuagint would use the word kurios, which means Lord in place of Yahweh. So where the Hebrew had Yahweh, the translators of the Septuagint put the word kurios, Lord. And guess what? When you turn to the New Testament, one of the most uh, uh, common or more often cited references to Christ is kurios, Lord. And so he has taken upon himself the name of the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh, Lord. And um, that's one of his favorite messianic titles. The nature of this psalm is such that it is closely related, however, to Psalm 45, which we looked at last week, which is quoted in, in verse 8 and 9. In other words, it stresses, it's another royalty psalm, it stresses the psalm it stresses the kingship of Jesus. Hebrews begins and ends this whole string of Old Testament citations, which was a common way to argue, by the way, in the Old Testament. The Jews would do this. They would use a string of Old Testament quotes together in order to draw different contrasts and comparisons between objects. And this is exactly what you have in chapter 1. A string of Old Testament quotes used to make a comparison, a contrast between two objects, namely angels and the sun. And that is what the author of Hebrews has done here. And we saw Jesus and his Davidic kingdom, his Davidic rule, his heavenly rule as the Davidic son, as king, Jesus is greater than angels because he is the son of God, verse 5. In, in Hebrews chapter 1. He is the object of angelic worship, verse 6. He directs angelic ministry, verse 7. He is ascribed with deity, verse 8. And he reigns over his people, verse 9. And now he exercises his lordship over creation and consummation alike. In other words, the origin of the universe and the culmination of the universe all under the rule, sovereignty, authority of Christ, leaving the angels in their proper place in verse 14 as ministers of those who will inherit salvation. But chapter 2, we're going to see that only in chapter 2, only Christ is redeemer. The angels are ministers. Christ is the redeemer. Now, let me point this out because anytime you have... Uh, uh, any, anytime you talk about this psalm, Psalm 102, you're reminded that he's in a troubled state. And we live in a troubled world. We live in a world that's full of chaos and trouble, tension, uncertainty. I mean, we have our own private lives. We do not know how things are going to work out. 
We have our culture where we see and we decry the wickedness that is all around us if you have eyes to see. And we have the world on a global scale in confusion, in disarray, wondering how are things going to work out. But I love the fact that the psalmist, to, to use in the spirit of John 16.33, where Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. If you're thinking that Christianity is uh, a faith where you are free of trouble, free of trial, free of sickness, free of disease, things are supposed to start going better for you, and then you become a Christian, and as the parable of the sower says in Matthew 13, you begin to be bombarded by trials, temptation, and persecution because of the word of God, many people fall away, but... The psalmist agrees with John 16.33. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Because he focuses on something solid, something sure. He goes back to the immutability of God. He goes back to the God who is above all things, above the creation, above the chaotic conditions of our world. Look at verse 10 again in Hebrews one, you, Lord, in the beginning lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. This is what I mean by the outlining of creation. Jesus is given total credit for the marvel, the mystery, the wonder, the beauty, the intricacy of creation. Whether we're talking about planets and their immensity or whether we're talking about microscopic things and their complexity, either one. Jesus is creator of all, creator of all. Now, I wanna point something out here as an aside, give you a caveat because I think it's encouraging for you. The way that this is phrased, this is a hermeneutics, hermeneutics to encourage your Christian life. You ready? This passage out of Hebrews, what it is saying is that as far as the authors of Scripture are, concern, are concerned, when Scripture speaks, God speaks. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. So you know that God is speaking. People ask you, is God speaking to you lately? You should say, well, yes, I've been reading my Bible, right? I need a word from the Lord right now. Read the Bible. <laughs> it's full of words from the Lord. You want to hear his voice? Read scripture. And you have an infallible prophetic word right in front of you. Right? The reason I say that is because if we go back to verse 3, you remember what's said there. It's speaking of God's speech, his voice, what he says. To which of the angels did he say... And then what comes directly after that is a series of scripture quotations, right? So the author of Hebrews is saying, what did God say? He quotes scripture. So folks, remember that. When scripture speaks, God speaks. That's so encouraging to know that when you're reading the word of God, you are hearing from God. God is speaking to his people when they are abiding in his word. So encouraging to maybe spend more time reading the Bible. 
to instead of, should I watch TV or should I read the Bible? Should I go and participate of this leisurely activity for the next three hours or should I pick up the Bible? You think about that. Think about the, 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 the solidity, the, the, just the surety of that. That when you're reading the word of God, you're reading God's word. He is speaking to you as you read his word. That's just a point I can't drive home hard enough. But here, back to Hebrews 1, the father speaks of the son's role as creator. He is the originator. He is the designer of the universe. And so two verses, you ready? John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. You should know these verses. These are verses that we should have memorized. But it says, he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. You know, it's amazing that we will get in a public forum and we will argue and talk about intelligent design. We will get on media and we will get on the news and we'll get on mainstream media and we'll talk about how we believe that the universe exhibits an intelligent designer. But where are the Christians that will get on television and say, Jesus Christ made all things, sustains all things, including your heart rate, your heartbeat, and will one day bring all things to an end? <laughs> you probably wouldn't get invited onto the local news with that. But that is the testimony of Scripture. Scripture is not trying to impress anybody. It's telling you the truth. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 17, you still have scores of people, thousands of people, my friends, who are deceived by one simple mistranslation in the Jehovah Witnesses translation, the New World Translation. I mean, that's old news for us because we've studied some apologetics. Oh, we know that. They insert the word other, but countless people are still deceived by the fact that the New World Translation in verse 17 inserted an interpretation when it says in Colossians 1:17, he is before all things. They inserted the word, he is before all other things meaning he is not before all things. No, he's before all other things. You see, Jesus himself is a creation. That's what the New World Translation is trying to teach. Total heresy, totally deceiving people and plunging people's souls into hell. So sad. I mean, we just recently ran into a Jehovah Witness family that we're trying to refer to that very text. Now, a parallel passage in Nehemiah 9, which really expounds some of the same points that Hebrews is talking about here in terms of creation and redemption, the prophet recounts how God's total covenant faithfulness to his people, and this is what he says in Nehemiah 9.6, you alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them and the heavenly host bow down before you. What a great parallel to Hebrews. It's not just that he created 
all things, but here the heavenly host, the angels are in their proper place when they bow down before their maker, which is Jesus Christ. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, Genesis chapter 1, are all part of creation. Now, he not only outlines the creation, he designs it, he's the originator of it, but this is, begins to get to the point of Hebrews. He also outlasts the creation. He outlasts the creation. As God's wisdom, the divine logos, as Jesus is called, his handiwork is on display throughout all of the marvels of creation, but the author's goal is to stress the enduring supremacy of the Son. You remember, beyond creation, beyond the psalmist, beyond the angels, the Son outlasts the created order. Look at verse 11. They will perish, but you remain. They all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will all be changed. You are the same, and your years will not come to an end, to an end. Now, just as we live in a world full of trouble, full of turmoil, full of uncertainty, we also live in a world of fleeting things, right? The world is also transient. In other words, we are, uh, we are reminded of this in our everyday lives. You know that you don't feel as well as you did when you were 20 years old, those of you that are 30 and 40. I don't. When I crawl to the side of the bed, I've got aches and pains that I never thought I would ever have. You know that your body is a total testimony of this. You are wearing out like a garment. You know that. But you know, our world is very good at always trying to impress us with new things, right? It's all about new, 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 new. And I don't think anything communicates that more than technology. We are constantly being told you need the latest technology. You need the latest tablet. You need the latest phone. And I'll be honest with you, I give right into it. I like new technology. It impresses me. It's amazing what man can do with the things that God has given him. But um, like technology, it will not last. It will not last. It is six months before your phone is old and, you know, it's not even popular anymore. Oh, you still have that one, <laughs> right? And you're sitting there thinking, what are you talking about? I just got it six months ago. And now they have these new contracts for the cell phones, right, where you can be updating your phone as often as you want. It's just crazy. You don't even learn how to use the phone before you need the new phone. I mean, this is how quick things are changing. You need the new, the latest, the best, the biggest, the brightest screen. Oh, this one has 50,000 megapixels on this screen. Oh, no, you need 57 megapixels. That's not, that's not good enough. I mean, it just goes on, right? Oh, no, you don't need HD. You need Ultra HD. No, you don't need Ultra HD. You need 4K. No, you don't need 4K. Now they got 8K or 12K. Oh, you have a flat TV? We've got round TVs now. <laughs> Where does it end? New does not last in a world that is perishing. And so we are directed away from the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, we are told not to fall in love with this world. We are not permitted to seek a permanent home here. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. We are not even to love our lives in this world. 
We have to have an open hand to this world. That is the way that we are to live. But it's even more than that, as I've already pointed out. It's more than just that the world is running out, the world is passing away, and the lust thereof, all of those things. The outer man is perishing. It's more than that. It's also that the Son is going to bring the end to pass. Look back with me at verse 11. They will perish, but you remain. They all will become old like a garment and like a mantle. Watch this. You will roll them up. The Son is going to bring an end to all things one glorious day. Why? It's because he has his sights set on a new heavens and a new earth. And guess what? When God makes something new, it doesn't ever get old. We will never need to update the new heavens and the new earth. We'll never need to upgrade the new Jerusalem. It is perpetually new. It is the product that everybody would want in their stores. Something that is perpetually new forever. And that's what God will do. He will create a new heavens and a new earth. He will bring the consummation of all things. And this is what the, this is what the psalmist encourages himself with. I think this is so great. If you go back to Psalm 102 for a moment. Go back to Psalm 102 for a moment. Because the psalmist here... Anytime you're in the Psalms, you remind yourself that you're dealing with a person who is battling some really, really heavy introspection. In other words, he's at a low place. You ever been low? You ever contemplated really dark things because of where you are? The psalmist has. The psalmist would say things like, oh, that I was never born. Curse the day that I was born. The psalmist contemplates things that, that show you that he is in a terrible state. Just like we read in our scripture reading today out of uh, Psalm 13. He contemplates, how long am I going to listen to my own soul? How long do I need to listen to myself? Where is the counsel of the Lord? So he's constantly looking for encouragement. But you remember, he feels completely abandoned. Look at this. In verse Excuse me, in verse 2, he asked God not to hide his face from him. He says, don't hide your face from me in the day of my distress. You see that? He's saying, God, where are you when I need you? <laughs> it's like, I'm in the moment of need. <laughs> and I'm asking, where is my God at this moment? You ever felt like that? In the moment where I feel like I need God, I don't feel feel like God is with me. And we know what the problem there is. It's feelings. Our relationship with God is not based on feelings, emotions. His trials have become so vexing, he feels it in his bones. It's gone into his physical condition. He has lost his appetite. Now, let me give you a hint. Pastor Emilio is ever really, really depressed. You'll know that because I'm not eating. It takes a lot for me not to eat. So I've got to be pretty depressed if I'm not eating. But the psalmist is saying, I have, I have lost my appetite. He says, I have forgotten to eat. Verse 4. He's in a low, low place. And when he thinks of himself, he sees again, he sees a disfigured, unclean creature like a pelican or an owl. Finally, in verse 6 and 7, he says, he feels like a lonely bird on the housetop. What is the imagery? Total insignificance. 
You ever feel like that? Totally insignificant? You feel, oh, God is working over there, but not with me. I am insignificant in the plans of God. You ever feel like a lonely bird on a housetop somewhere, totally alone, totally insignificant, totally discarded? How does the psalmist encourage himself at this point? Where does he go when he feels totally estranged? Psychology? Absolutely not. Drugs? No. Not in a million years. Instead, he goes to the sovereign, immutable, infinite, eternal creator God who alone can assure him that he is not forgotten. That's beautiful. That's strength. That's how you want to overcome your trials. And so go to Psalm 2. Identify there. Be, I was pounding on this verse of Scripture, this, past, this chapter, Psalm 102. I was sitting there because I know that this is where we are oftentimes, sometimes on a weekly basis. We feel like this, and we need encouragement. And where will that encouragement come? He goes to God to remember that he is not forgotten. Look at Psalm 102, verse 28. The children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you. While the psalmist is seeking for personal deliverance, he also looks forward to the corporate dimensions of God's redemption. He looks forward to the, he look, as he looks at his transient days, his temporal days. He gazes on God's eternal days. Look at verse 11. He says, my days are like a lengthened shadow. I wither away like grass, but you. This is where all biblical encouragement comes from. But you, but God made us alive. I was dead in trespasses and sins, but God made us alive, right? I was like a lengthened shadow. I was withering away like grass. But you, O Lord, abide forever. And your name to all generations. You will arise and have compassion on Zion. For it is time to be gracious to her, for the appointed time has come. It's not, uh, to me, it is not coincidental that the author of Hebrews should pick this passage of Scripture to talk about to talk about the appointed time, the salvation that comes for God's people, at least partially inaugurated in Christ. But look at uh, verse 23. He has weakened my strength in the way. He has shortened my days. I say, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generation, generations. The angels, like the psalmist, are transitory in nature. Their days are mutable. The sun's days eternal, immutable. But you are the same. Back in the Hebrews chapter 1 verse 12, you are the same unending days, and your years will not come to an end. So the author of Hebrews will focus yet again on one final comparison here between the angels and the sun, where the angels are the ministers of the enthroned King. So this is the last comparison. Not only does he outline creation, not only does he outlast creation, but he also outshines the creation. He outshines the creation. So look with me at verses 13 through uh, uh, 
through 14. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So the book of Hebrews is all about the better nature of Jesus, right? You with me? The better quality of Jesus than all other things, better than Moses, better than the priesthood, better than the law. He's better than the sacrifices. He is better than all of it. He's better than angels in this chapter. And the whole New Testament now, joining together with Hebrews, because remember, Psalm 110, which is what verse 13 is quoting, is the most often used psalm in the New Testament. And in the book of Hebrews, he uses it repeatedly for various things. And ultimately, it's going to be used to point us from the earthly to the heavenly. And I can't wait to get there. The psalm is used in chapter 8 to refer to his priesthood. In chapter uh, 10, verse 12, to refer to his sacrifice. In chapter 12, verse 2, to refer to his exaltation. And right here in verse 13, his supremacy over the angels. He outshines the angels because he outshines the created order. That's why. The psalm is a psalm of total exaltation, which has already been referenced. Let's go back to verse 3. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is an allusion back to Psalm 110. It's not a direct quotation, but it is an allusion going back there. Here the whole verse is cited to emphasize not only the son's work of redemption, but also God's work, his father's work of vindication. God vindicating his son when he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is beautiful. This is radical. This is saying that there is going to come a time where every knee will bow. Every tongue is going to confess Every present enemy of the Lord will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. And people will either do that now in this life or you will do it in the life to come. You will do it and it will be a forced acknowledgement of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. You will bow. You will either bow now or you will bow later. You will confess now or you'll confess later. I mean, this is, this is awesome. I don't know if people know if the Bible teaches this. I really don't. I think people think that Jesus is just a, a calm, docile, pacifistic hippie who wouldn't harm a fly. They think Jesus is the founder of PETA or something. He's, he is a king. And what is the gospel, by the way? The gospel is Jesus sending the opportunity to the world to be forgiven before he comes to destroy all of his enemies. That's what it is. It's his condition of pardon. It's his leaflet to the world to say, bow now or bow later. Repent now or you will perish. That's what the gospel is. We could call this, this time of Jesus sitting on the throne, we can call this the patience of Christ's heavenly session. 
He is patiently waiting for God to work all things out, for the Father to work all things out, but eventually all of his enemies will be put under his feet. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy is death, and that too will be put under his feet. He will defeat death. He will defeat death. And Jesus will return. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He will return. Christ himself will return to defeat his enemies. He will participate in this conquest. When Jesus was on earth, he was in a time of humility, in a time of passivity. 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us that Jesus was, uh, was not, did not retaliate when he was wronged. When evil was done to him, he did not return evil for evil. He did not revile those who were harming him, but he accepted the death of the cross. But he has now entered into his exaltation, and when he returns, it will be a time of vengeance and power. This is remarkable. You wanna talk about an encouraging word for the persecuted church? You want to talk about Christians right now in Iraq and ISIS, what ISIS is doing? You want to talk about Christians in Syria? I told you, I read an article, a bishop said Christianity is over in Iraq. It's gone. He said, there's no more Christians here. They've either all left, all been killed, the church, their churches are destroyed. And what do you find in these words? The Apostle Paul encouraging the Thessalonians who also were under persecution. The Thessalonians could identify with the Iraqi Christians. Probably more than we can, right? Because the Thessalonians were under persecution. And so they can identify with the persecution that the persecuted church is going through. And this is the way that Paul comforts them. Verse 7, excuse me, verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. That's the persecution. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, because Paul was often persecuted, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I told you in terms of the, 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 the conditions for pardon. They don't obey it. They don't take heed to it. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When? When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. Let's talk about the second coming. And to be marveled at by all who have believed for our testimony to you was true. So what will it be? Christ will return we will marvel, and those who did not obey the gospel will perish. It will be a horrific day. The second coming of Christ will be a day of terrible judgment on planet Earth, and it will be a time of glorious deliverance for the church. Maybe a more, um, maybe a different angle. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. We're almost done here. But Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, this is just one of the times where Revelation gives us a snapshot about the second coming. 
And here, Revelation 19, 11, it says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. That's Jesus. And in, and in righteousness, he judges and, makes, and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. So don't come up after, after the sermon and ask me what that name is. Because it says right here, no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. These are all the, the saints that have died and been with the Lord in his second coming will come back with him. For his mouth comes a sharp sword from his mouth, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's probably the millennium. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is what Hebrews is talking about when it says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Revelation 19 is showing us what it looks like when his, all of his enemies are, foot, are a footstool for his feet, which is just Old Covenant, Old Testament Hebraic imagery of a king so powerful, so sovereign, so mighty, that everyone is beneath his rule and authority, his sovereignty, and his dominion. That's what Hebrews is talking about. Now, Hebrews chapter 1 ends on a very personal and also on a very precious note. Look at verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. So this is the final contrast of the angels. The angels, they don't play an insignificant role just because they are less than or inferior to the sun. No, they, they play a marvelous role. We talked about that last week, the, the ministry that the angels had throughout the old covenant, revealing, judging, bringing divine messages, even ministering to the very Son of God in his time of temptation. But the angels are now like a serve as a warning to new covenant believers, new covenant believers. And so what I want to do is I want to end by reading Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Looking ahead a little bit here, for this reason, see how the Bible works? Everything is connected. This is how the Bible works. For, but, and, also, these are called coordinating clauses. It means the whole book is strung together exegetically, and it is our duty to exegete what is before us. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention that what we, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. In other words, the angels and their ministry, what they have done is for the purpose of those who will inherit salvation. Therefore, because of their ministry, we had better pay close attention. 
so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved to be unalterable, in other words, the old covenant, when the angels were there on Mount Sinai and the flashing and the thunder and the smoke and the glory and angelic hosts were present and it was so terrifying that the people said they didn't, they didn't want to hear another word come from Sinai. From Sinai. It, was so, it was so miraculous and so magnificent and so terrific and terrifying that they didn't want to hear another word. So he says, look, if that word, <laughs> when the angels were involved in the old covenant was unalterable. You could not break what was being spoken there. How, he says, and every transgression, watch this, every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. In other words, breach of the covenant, you saw what happened. The children of Israel paid dearly for breaking the old covenant. So, an argument from the lesser to the greater. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. After, let's stop there. Because I don't want you walking around with the Bible and thinking, did I neglect my salvation today? I mean, did I read enough? Did I do my devotions? Did I go to church? Did I tithe? Did I give enough money at the church? You know, have I, have I neglected my salvation? It's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about your devotional time. Did you put in enough Christian work Neglecting your salvation in this book and in the context of Hebrews is referring to failing to see the supremacy of the new covenant versus the old covenant. That's what it's talking about. But that doesn't mean that there's not a general warning for all of us that we have so great a salvation. Look at what it says here. How will we escape if we have so great a salvation? after it was at first spoken through the Lord. In other words, what was spoken through angels, the word that came through the angels, guess what? Something greater has come. A more serious word, clear, greater revelation has come in Jesus Christ. It was spoken through the Lord, and that's referring to Jesus and then watch this. It was confirmed to us by those who heard. Three generations there. It was, or, or two generations at least. It was what the Lord spoke, what the apostles heard, and what the church received. That is what it is saying. So in other words, the benefit of the ministry of angels now is for us. They're ministering about this this salvation that was ready to be revealed, the difference is, is that now salvation has been revealed. It has all been spoken. It has all been laid out. And guess what? Everything, as we're going to learn from the book of Hebrews, every shadow, every type, every image, every sacrifice, every institution, every office, everything was pointing to this great, magnificent day when a new covenant would be installed and the people of God would have God as their covenant God realized in Jesus Christ. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, if you neglect that, 
Because this is everything God has been doing. And if you neglect what he's been doing, you, if you neglect the climax of it all, how can you be renewed again to repentance? That's chapter 6, and I don't want to get into that yet. <laughs> I've got several weeks to study for that one because it is a challenging text.